everyone, and welcome to Another Bite, where we rewatch the most innovative and intriguing pitches from Shark Tank. I'm Jory, and I'm joined by the amazing, the adaptable, and the accomplished Ariel. Hey. What's a lunchbox's favorite dance move? The box trot, of course. You guessed it, today we're talking lunchboxes. I'm partial to the classic brown paper bag, but this product is teaching me I need to get my act together. We need to lunch, but make it fashion. Will the sharks agree? After this ad, we'll see. There's no secret formula for better service throughout the customer journey, but there is the all new service hub from HubSpot. It makes it infinitely easier to scale customer support and increase retention. By bringing service and support together in one powerful platform, you can deliver the best experiences for your customers and your teams. Free up time for your reps to focus on complex issues with an AI-powered help desk. Proactively drive retention with customer health scores that help keep your business ahead and give your entire go-to-market team the data they need to operate as one unified, powerful front. Also, you can easily support, strengthen, and grow your customer base. Secrets out, HubSpot Service Hub is a game changer. Visit hubspot.com slash service to do more for your customers today. Today in the tank, we have Modern Picnic, and Modern Picnic is brought to us by founder Allie, who is asking for $400,000 in exchange for 6.5% of her company, which is a $6.15 million valuation. Oh, yeah, no, small pickings for uh, Mr. Wonderful. (laughs) But essentially, the problem that this product is trying to solve for Modern Picnic is that it's very difficult, especially for young entrepreneurs or professionals entering the workplace to bring their own lunch and still remain fashionable. So you don't want to bring that paper bag. You don't want to bring that single-use plastic. So Modern Picnic is here to help. They offer a range of not just fashionable, but insulated vegan leather lunch boxes that are really designed to blend seamlessly into the modern urban lifestyle. So these lunch boxes actually end up looking a bit like very fashionable purses, like handbags. Ultimately, this company is aiming to provide a more stylish and sustainable solution to everyday meal storage. You know, hopefully in the long run, save you some money, limit your food waste. So thinking about our pitch, our founder, and our product, Ariel, what are your initial thoughts of Modern Picnic? Jerry, we're going to have a great discussion for this one. Mm-hmm. I would buy something like this. I feel like I am the audience. Okay. We're lucky that we work remotely, but True. back when I used to work in an office, that was my biggest challenge was being able to find a lunchbox, yep. you know, instead of just carrying in my Tupperware or a bag, but having something that looked a little bit more professional, looked a little bit more sleek. So I would totally be a person that would walk into Saks and purchase this for like multiple use and multiple times. My only hesitancy with this, though, is that it's not more dual purpose. Mm, Okay. I'm looking for something that I can keep my stuff cold, but also put my laptop in without anything spilling on my laptop. Like I would love to have like an all-in-one solution. You know, that is actually a really good point. So you'd want an even bigger, better modern picnic purse. Or a backpack or something that has like an insulated pocket Mm -hmm. and then something for my laptop. I just want it all in one. (laughs) But Jory, what do you think? Okay. So I will go on record and say that I am very hesitant about my use and consumption of plastic. That's something that over the years has become really important to me. And at the same time, I'm really hesitant when I feel like there are brands that are greenwashing because I think that that is something that has become a problem in modern consumerism. Mm -hmm. To be clear, 
Vegan leather in and of itself isn't greenwashing in my opinion. So there are some really awesome apple skin, banana skin, cork alternatives that are coming out on the market right now that are creating these really interesting, but ultimately like compostable vegan leather alternatives. The thing is though, is looking at Modern Picnic, I do kind of bucket this into the realm of greenwashing. Let's define. Yeah. Okay. So greenwashing is basically an environmental marketing tactic where you're marketing with like little or no substance to back up your claims that your product is sustainable, that it's helping the environment. Theoretically, a company could say that it's improved all of its light bulbs and said that it's created a sustainability initiative. So I think part of the problem is there's no like industry standard for some of these claims. So vegan leather just means not from an animal. Mm -hmm. The problem is most vegan leather options on the market in mass right now are from polyvinyl chloride or polyurethane. Now, those are heavy-duty plastic petroleum products. They are bad for the environment. They are bad to produce. Looking at the cost of making this product, which is around $30, I'm not saying that it's definitively that because it doesn't list what it's actually made of on the website, but that price point is leading me to believe that it's one of those options, right? Because those are really cheap for companies to produce. And like companies usually do it for what we see this company essentially have, which is like these insane profit margins. Hmm. Again, sustainability, no legal definition. I think if you look on their website, the sustainability aspect is that it's preventing you from using single-use plastic bag options for your lunch, which I guess sort of it's makes multiple sense. multiple-use in some ways, but... Yeah, it's multi-use for sure, and that it's like preventing food waste. But what makes greenwashing a little bit more insidious is sort of what you see here, which is like greenwashing works because it's all about being super vague with your messaging and framing. Mm -hmm. It's leaning on what you think this means versus giving definitive definitions of what you're meaning. So it's like this kind of manipulation of your copy and creative in a way that like makes it sound super awesome. But again, doing so without any actual evidence That's where I really didn't like this product. I thought it was like a little bit misleading. Devil's advocate, Jory. Mm -hmm. If she didn't make sustainability claims... Then I think it would be fine. Okay, so it's the matter of like how it's being framed. Honestly, I think I would have even had a better perception of the product if they just actually listed what it's made out of. Back it up with data. We talk about like social proof, but this is like actual proof in the numbers. And I think that companies should just be a little bit more careful when it comes to making claims, especially when there is no industry standard. I think that's a way that you can promote and build trust in your audience just right out of the gate. So I guess my general tip and trick for marketing to avoid being categorized as greenwashing is just avoid vague and misleading language. But I think that Gen Z and millennials are a little bit more careful when people start making claims. It's such an easy mistake to avoid. Yeah. See, where I struggle with it is at what level do we expect these companies to push that social good Mm -hmm. versus relying on consumers to, you know, educate themselves on what vegan leather is? Because I could see it from like a very investor capitalistic mindset, right? Because Jory, to your point, if they were upfront about like everything, sure, it builds some brand trust. But I also think too, they run the risk of like, why are they presenting all this information about plastics? And this kind of turns me off a little Mm, bit. Too much information. So I think it's like a delicate balance. And like, I hear you on the sustainability piece, but the fact that there is so much wiggle room 
makes me feel like it's a little less of a marketing sin Mm -hmm. to associate yourself in that space. (laughs) But that's fair. I think that they start to do that on the frequently asked questions of their website. We get almost there. We get, where is it made? (laughs) I think your average consumer actually doesn't care what it's made out of. But for the ones that do, I think being transparent from the get-go, it's an easy way to build brand trust. So I will also just caveat everything and say that like not everyone is purchasing like jewelry. (laughs) They've made over like 6 million, but like 2 million in profit. So they're selling thousands of these bags, doing really successful in direct to consumer. I think 70% of the revenue was e-commerce direct to consumer. So they're also driving incredible value from their website and like clearly getting in front of the right audience. What gets a little interesting, and I'd like you to help me dig into a little bit more. As I mentioned, they made like $2 million in profit. Mm -hmm. It seems like half of that is going to their marketing strategy. So I think when we first started to see these absolute margins and like the amount of profit and momentum that this business has driven so far, all of the sharks super excited. Once they started to kind of peel back the layers a little bit, less excited because again, huge marketing spend. I was curious on your take on that because they mentioned that they had a profit of $2 million. They're going to actually lose $100,000 this year because of their diverse set of marketing. What is a good marketing budget? Where do you think that they went overboard here? And what is your general advice about like how they should move forward if they are heavily reliant on a very large marketing budget, but may need to, you know, tighten it up a little bit? Yeah. So bit of a red flag for me to hear that 50% of their revenue is put back into marketing spend. I think my biggest like initial thought is, well, if you're spending 50% on marketing, Obviously, there's something that's amiss in terms of like gathering your target audience. Your customers should not be that high of a cost per acquisition. I'll caveat though, like when you are starting a business, it is important to have a considerable amount of your revenue go back into marketing and expanding sales and getting more customers in love with your brand and having that advocacy and kind of generating that flywheel, but should not be close to 50%. I think the second piece is hearing more and I kind of wish that she went more into like, well, what are the marketing efforts that they've done to date? I think a really great answer could have been like, hey, we allocated a million dollars on Facebook ads and we aren't finding any audiences coming from there. Or we tried on a number of different channels kind of here and there. We didn't really have enough creative videos to showcase our product. What are her hypotheses for thinking why the marketing isn't working and what that misses? I kind of would have loved to put that back on the founder. With that said, though, I think there's a lot of really easy things that she could do now of like hiring on a social media agency and kind of leveraging some of that spend so it's in a controlled manner for marketing. You know, you test on a few different channels, you try different formats to acquire your audience, but ideally over time, your marketing spend should go down as your sales go up. So I think that would be my first piece of advice to her since she is so focused on direct-to-consumer. I think the second piece that's really interesting is the retail partnerships that she's starting to build for distribution. Mm. (laughs) Devil's advocate, if you're buying something at like a Macy's or a Saks, you're not going to look up what ingredients are, quality of things. So I actually think her leaning more into in-store marketing dollars Mm -hmm. at some of these stores could actually be a really great way for her to continue to drive foot traffic and getting that initial first purchase. Because once when you get first purchase once, 
you have someone who loves the product, that's when they'll either buy more, buy some for their friends. So I think this is a really great product that you can really generate interest through the traffic and brick and mortar. And especially for folks who are like going into the office, they see like, oh, it's a new handbag. Like it's just additional marketing or advertising space outside of the digital landscape. So I think doubling down on a retail distribution and promotion and trade dollars and leveraging that there for like displays and then really trying to understand and be kind of gritty when it comes to like testing and learning when it comes to different digital formats and what kind of content really resonates with her audience and you know who her audience is. I was curious what you thought about this product taking a bit of like a referral marketing or like ambassador program approach. For folks that are looking to be stylish, they're going to tell their friends, look at my cute lunchbox or they're going to be like, you know, where'd you get that? Yeah. I think affiliate could be like a really good avenue for her to lean into. And besides the fact that it is an affordable luxury item, I think, you know, she doesn't have to worry too much about commissions from like affiliate eating into like her margins, you know, considering fact that she's getting like 60% margins, like as is. (laughs) I think she has like the wiggle room to lean into like an affiliate or like an influencer kind of lens. They're even like partnerships with like Sweetgreen, Mm -hmm. where like they're taking product photos of their salad. Mm -hmm. I think there's really fun product placement ways that they could play around. That's so smart. The major moment of this episode, and I think a bit of a wake-up call was that moment when Emma Greed was just like, it is a myth that you should be overspending on customer acquisition, like as you said, Ariel, and you know, essentially advising a bit gently, a bit not gently that- Be more uh, transparent. Be more transparent, <laughs> but like go back to the fundamental business mm-hmm. practices and all of those tactics you just mentioned is like, know your customer, really understand what they're interested in, what their problem is, what you're solving for. Ultimately though- Womp womp. Womp womp indeed. We had a bit of a sad episode. The Sharks did not extend any offers. I think it was really ultimately the marketing expenses and really looking at those financials that like drove them away. Question the trust a little bit. Right. Because when they first heard those numbers, they were like, where is your money going? Yeah. But it was ultimately the biggest obstacle for the Sharks is this extensive marketing expenses. I do think to your point, if she had sort of been like, well, this is actually where the money went and broken that down a little bit more, maybe that would have like won back some of that trust. But ultimately, no Shark Tank deal. Womp womp. Production for today's episode was brought to you by Ari Desarmo. Editing comes from Robert Hartwig and support from Alfred Schultz. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, or wherever you subscribe to the greatest podcasts ever. That does it for me. See you next week in the tank for another bite. Create Like the Greats, hosted by Ross Simmons, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. Each episode hosts an in-depth analysis of some of the greatest creations and creators of all time, along with deep dive conversations on the creative process that went into building companies and brands. If you like learning about history or learning about the creative process, you'll like this podcast. Listen to Create Like the Greats wherever you get your podcasts.